Hi, I'm Scott Lynch, author of The Gentleman Bastard Sequence, and you're listening to Podcastle. Podcastle, episode 428, for August 9th, 2016. Madame Philidae Elopes, written by K.A. Tarina, and translated by Anatoly Belilovsky. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle, your weekly slice of fantasy pie. This is Peter Wood stepping out from behind the audio production scenes to host this week's episode. And I'm thrilled to... Thrilled to... I'm I'm sorry. We've just had this new superluminal antibol installed in the castle, and I'm not sure how to put it on mute. Um, Hold on. Pardon me for one minute. Hello? Oh, hi, Alistair. Uh, You what? Oh, sure. Hold on. Hey everyone, Alistair wants to talk to you for a minute, and since, you know, he controls the air in which this castle flies, as well as some spaceships and an absolutely terrifying dungeon, I guess I should let him. You're on, Alistair. Hi everyone, Alistair here, coming at you with some science. Well, numbers. Big numbers, though. EA produces and gives away for free around 50 short stories a quarter. The first quarter of this year... 25 of those stories were original publications at SFWA's qualifying rate. Those 25 stories totaled 88,000 words. That's double the minimum size of a novel. It's comfortably over the size of most short anthologies and within sight of the average length of a year's best. In three months... Or to put it another way, the original short fiction equivalent to one book of The Song of Ice and Fire every year. Double that to include reprints, and the word count topples The Lord of the Rings. Every year. For free. That's amazing! And it's also not easy. EA is committed to paying its authors, and that's all down to you. If you already donate, thank you so much. If you don't, Please, if you can, go to any of the sites and click on the PayPal Donate button. You'll be able to choose between Donate and Subscribe, and at as little as $2 a month, subscription's a great deal and helps way more than you might think. We also accept Dwaller donations, and if neither of those methods work for you, let us know. And again, if you do donate, thanks. Thanks for that information. And now where was... Oh, yes... Absolutely thrilled to introduce Madame Philidae Elopes, written by K.A. Tarina and translated by Anatoly Belilovsky. K.A. Tarina is an author, screenwriter, and illustrator. Since her first publication in 2008, she has won multiple awards and had a number of her stories published in Russian sci-fi magazines Esli, Mir Fantastiki, and others. She lives in Moscow, and you can find her online at k a Tarina.blogspot.com. And this story was written for a contest and was based on an original painting by Yekaterina Yelisevi. Links, as always, will be in the show notes. 
Anatoly Belovsky has had over 40 original and translated stories published in English since 2011. He is a member of SIFWA and Codex Writers, and has been translated himself into Russian, Chinese, and Spanish. You can find him online at www.laldoc.net. The story this week is read to you by the ever-wonderful Tina Connolly, whose voice and words have been with Podcastle from the very beginning, with her first narration being all the way back in episode 13, and her first story with us being the Podcastle Miniature 29, Birthday Wish. Tina is the author of the Iron Skin Trilogy from Tor and the Seriously Wicked series from Tor Teen. The newest Seriously novel, Seriously Shifted, releases November 1st. Her novels have been finalists for The Nebula and The Norton. Her stories have appeared on all four Escape Artist podcasts and are now collected in On the Eyeball Floor and Other Stories from Fairwood Press. In addition to her work here at the castle, she has a spiffy spaceship of her own as co-host at Escape Pod and has narrated stories at Beneath Ceaseless Skies and Pseudopod. You can find her at tinaconnolly.com and on Twitter at at tinaconnolly. And now, open up your reticule, take out a smile, and enjoy the story. Madame Felide Elopes by K. H. Arena Translated by Anatoly Belilovsky. 1. Madame Felide and the Smile Merchants On Friday, Madame Felide bought all the smiles the local merchants had for sale. Merry and sad, shy and modest, childlike and old, tender, happy, polite, ugly, warm, soft, villainous, ironic, open, timid, grudging, obsequious, Every single one. Shopkeepers dug through their deepest cellars to find silly grins that rarely sold, and usually gathered dust amid bits of obsolete gossip and jokes peeled off the floor after they had fallen flat. She emptied the display cases of fleeting smiles and gullible smiles, and especially made sure to acquire every single sincere smile in the entire town. She also bought two ounces of contagious laughter and half a pound of good cheer. For change, the sales clerk gave her a tall sachet full of pointed double entendres. Dancing, skipping, and humming a silly little song about a cat, Madame Felide hurried home. What a stir she would cause in the town when everyone realized they'd have to spend holidays with serious faces. Some may have smiles squirreled away for a rainy day. Some may have to rifle through keepsake boxes for antique smiles inherited from their grandmothers. How funny they will look wearing grins a century out of date and mothball scented at that. But the rest will skulk along the boulevard, avoiding their friends. What if someone makes a clever joke? Does one respond with cheap, tasteless laughter scraped up with pocket lint? Or with a silent nod betraying short-sighted stinginess? On the way home, Madame Velide encountered prim Anglian women who walked their well-schooled children and well-bred dogs. Or was it the other way around? All of them, women, children, and dogs, cast great quantities of disapproving looks her way, opprobrium being an inexpensive commodity often shared generously with strangers. In return, Madame Velide took a brand new, mysterious smile from her reticule and tried it on right there in the middle of the street. She walked on, warmed by the sounds of Anglian's horrified whispers as they gossiped about her odd spendthrift profligacy.
Avion waited in her garden, squeaking his wheels nervously. His high-strung personality kept him awake instead of sleeping quietly in the hangar. A family of siskins perched on Avion's prowl-like nose, chittering happily to each other as she approached. Two. Madame Vélidet visits the seashore. Madame Vélidet did not like painting. That is why she painted dozens of landscapes and portraits which now gathered dust in her attic. She did not hang her work in rooms she actually used, believing, correctly as it turned out, that the bright colors of her paintings would ruin the delicately tasteful Anglian style of the interior, which was a source of justifiable pride for her house. Madame Vélidet was a soft-hearted woman, who often showed more consideration for her friends than for her own comforts. Only one picture, painted the day before, remained in the living room, and even so she placed it in a dark corner and covered it carefully in black cloth. House frowned, its walls curling in disapproval around the easel on which the painting rested, but did no more than that. He was too well brought up to express his peak openly. Madame Vélidet took her purchases from her reticule and tossed them carelessly onto the table. She waved at the painting, and at her gesture the black cloth crawled down to the floor, revealing a huge, half a wall in size, canvas on which a raging ocean clawed for the sky. Sea spray filled the room. Madame Vélidet smelled and tasted salt on her lips, and a gust of wind blew a bundle of frivolous smiles off the table. In the painting... The rocky shore appeared deserted except for a bright spot where someone's discarded clothes lay near the water's edge. Madame Vélidet peered into the waves, hoping to make out the person who went for a swim in such inclement weather. She did not succeed, and so picked up the cup of tea that her house had made for her and left the room. Avion had already rolled to the airstrip and huffed impatiently, hurrying her to board. Madame Vélidet eased into her seat, careful not to spill her tea, and Avion took off. House looked wistfully toward them, regretting not being able to go for a walk to Anger Street and back. He thought it unseemly for a well-bred Anglian home to dream of travel and adventure, but still a small bit of longing entered his heart, bringing back the memory of his childhood when, as a tiny brick, he had made the long and dangerous journey from Chester to Warrington to receive his education in Socratic discourses with a cat. At first, Avion flew low and slow like an elderly pigeon. Madame Vélidet marveled at the familiar landscape, taking it in as unhurriedly she drank her tea. For perhaps the first time in her life, she wanted to cut the flight short and to return home immediately. Therefore, she directed Avion to fly toward the sea. Having finished her tea, she threw her teacup overboard. Knowing that Anglians consider shattered porcelain a favorable omen, she tried as often as possible to brighten the lives of her neighbors. It was also a good way to rid herself of tea sets, which a distant aunt of hers, with clock-like regularity and bovine perseverance, sent her as gifts for every imaginable holiday. The cup whistled through the air, under the very nose of an elderly gentleman, and shattered on the pavement. Immediately, Avion rose through the clouds into bright sunshine and clear blue sky. A half hour later, the sea appeared on the horizon. It rolled its slow waves toward the shore and debated with the sky about the clarity of their colors. The sea was tranquility itself and looked not at all like the tempestuous force of nature that had hidden under the cloth cover in Madame Vélidet's house. 
Having returned home, Madame Felidé hurried to the living room, pulled the curtain off her painting, and recoiled at the darkness revealed before her. Her heart skipped, but then she saw the stars and heard the distant surf, and her heart returned to beating. The man of her dream slept in her easy chair. A few sheets of paper lay scattered on the table. For a minute, Madame Felidé listened to his calm, slow breath, then carefully covered the painting again and tiptoed out of the room. That night her sleep was filled with visions of tiny silver fish, purple sky, warm rain, and the man of her dreams. Three, Madame Felidé and unwelcome guests. Madame Felidé could not stand having guests, so each Saturday at eleven in the morning she put on tea. When no one came, which happened often, she retrieved from her reticule a vial with sighs of relief and happily released one of them. Each sigh cost her practically nothing, especially compared against incessant chatter for Anglian acquaintances whose tongues unfurled rather quickly in her presence. There was a knock on the door at the same time as the clock struck. Madame Felidé donned her most joyous smile and hurried to answer it. Anna Meadows and Bess Thompson were the two of greatest of all misfortunes that could befall one on Saturday morning. Tall, ungainly Anna Meadows usually glared such powerful distaste toward all that surrounded her that Madame Felidé often wondered where she's bought it. Anna Meadows was also extremely stingy, her dresses, her gossip, and her jokes apparently purchased at garage sales. She wore a wide, childish smile as she came in and exuded a faint odor of mildew, having apparently extracted the smile from her deepest cellar simply to annoy Madame Felidé. Bess Thompson, blessed with the intelligence of three goats, had on an everyday smile of the kind they sold at last year's farmer's fair. Bess's stupidity was entirely natural, and did not at all go with her clothes, or with her position as women's auxiliary council chair for the town in which they lived. The tea party went far better than Madame Velide expected. Bess talked incessantly of suffragettes, and of the Queen's impending visit, while Anna Meadows shared last year's gossip about the college rector's wife. Madame Felidé stayed out of the conversation, only nodding occasionally and in all the wrong places, and glancing nervously at the picture that stood covered in the corner, about which house's features twisted in disapproval. After the blueberry pie was eaten to the last morsel, tea drunk to the last drop, smiles worn off and gossip chewed and spat out, it was time to go home. The guests hurried to get ready, when Anne's wondering gaze fell into the curve of the far corner of the room. "'How cute,' she said, and pursed her lips, the smile she had nursed through two hours of tea having finally disappeared. Madame Felidé watched in silence as her guest headed toward the painting. The words, "'If you don't mind, my dear,' had barely enough time to escape Anne's lips as she raised the edge of the cover." Had Anne thought to lay down a supply of high-quality shrieks, she would have used it up that instant. Lacking not only that, but even the cheaper generic exclamations, she stepped back, pulling the cloth with her, and froze in an incongruous pose before dropping everything and running from the room. In the picture, bright noonday sun shone on a rocky seashore. A man who had only just stepped out of the water hurriedly pulled dry pants on over wet underwear. Four, Madame Felidé's departure from Anglia.
On Thursday, Madame Vélidé wanted to listen to music, so she went downstairs to the living room and practiced painting rabbits. The rabbits came out looking far too frightened, and Madame Vélidé painted over them, accidentally painting the man of her dreams in process. His eyes were full of sorrow and understanding, as if the man of her dreams had waited all his life for her to paint him. "'Stand still,' said Madame Vélidé. "'I will paint you a smile.' The man of her dreams stood motionless. Only his lips moved a little as he whispered, I love you. Such nonsense, said Madame Vélidé sharply, and picked up her brush. None of her attempts to put more brush strokes on the canvas succeeded. She tried all her paints in vain. The painting lived its own life, refusing to obey its creator. Madame Vélidé found herself at a loss. How can the painting be without a smile? It could not. She covered the painting and went to bed. Her sleep that night was haunted by visions of surf, acacia trees, cinnamon, a boathouse, and the man of her dreams. That is precisely why Madame Vélidé went smile shopping on Friday, and not because she was a frivolous kind of a person. She only needed one smile. But which one? It was a good thing that her intuition told her to buy the lot. And now, having shepherded Bess Thompson out of her home, Madame Vélidé set herself to the task of attaching the smiles to the canvas. She tried paper glue, shampoo, jam, milk, treacle, ink, and even oatmeal. Beset with anxiety, she accidentally ate several of the smiles, which turned out to be delicious, especially when smeared with raspberry jam. Madame Vélidé felt chagrin at having drawn such a sad man. How silly for a person to lack a smile, like a cat without whiskers. And Madame Vélidé picked up a length of silk yarn and threaded it through the eye of her needle. Now I will sew a smile to your face, the sincerest smile of all, she said. Just don't be afraid and don't move. You wouldn't like to smile with your nose or your ears, would you? I am terribly ticklish, you know, said the man of her dreams. Don't sew anything. Why not just marry me instead? And he smiled. Tenderly, courageously, merrily, and a bit ironically. This was an unexpected development, and caught by surprise, Madame Vélidé agreed without a second thought. Wait a minute, she said, while I get my toothbrush. But as soon as I return, you simply must tell me where you found such a magnificent smile. Madame Vélidé was not a sentimental woman, and so she walked out of her house to say farewell to Avion. She kissed him on the propeller hub and turned away to sweep an uninvited tear off her face. Avion thought for a moment about trying on a bit of sadness, but changed his mind. Instead, he rolled slowly in the direction of the sea, the ungreased left gear wheel whistling a merry tune. Avion knew that on the road he would undoubtedly meet a little girl who dreams about the sky. Madame Félidé returned to house and ran her hand over his rough brick wall. House did not answer. Only the faucet in the seldom-used guest bathroom sprung a tiny leak, dripping water that, were anyone to taste it, would have proved unusually salty. Madame Félidé donned a wide-brimmed hat, tied a silk bow at her collar, and for no apparent reason retrieved her black umbrella from the hall closet. Returning to her painting, she closed her eyes, thinking herself a terrible coward, and stepped through the canvas. 
Five. Madame Felidae catches up on her reading. After Madame Felidae learned to smile, sigh, and cry on her own, as well as many other important things, after her elder son went to school, and the younger said his first word, boo, and shook his soup spoon at the cat, in short, many years later, Madame Felidae decided to sort old papers that gathered dust in the attic. There, among old theater playbills, yellowed newspapers, postcards from Aunt Fanny, and expired stagecoach tickets, she found a few pages covered in her husband's impatient handwriting. She put away the file with important documents, perched comfortably near the attic window, from which a beautiful view of the rocky seacoast could be seen, and began to read. On Friday, Madame Felidae bought all the smiles the local merchants had for sale. Merry and sad, shy and modest, childlike and old, tender, happy, polite, ugly, warm, soft, tender, villainous, ironic, open, shy, grudging, obsequious, every single one. And welcome back. In his book, Godel Escher Bach, Douglas Hofstadter observes that a loop is a way of representing an endless process in a finite way. This is a tricky thing to do in fiction and can lead to a story that feels closed off or merely gimmicky. When it works, though, having an ending loop back upon itself can give the reader a vertiginous sense of the infinite. I'm thinking here of Samuel R. Delaney's Dahlgren in particular. What makes Escher's drawings like waterfalls or drawing hands so enchanting and wondrous is not only the sense of an infinite loop, but the way in which the loop is composed of a detailed and meticulous realism. He grounds the fantastic within a figurative specificity. That's what I love about this story. I might not know all of the rules or the details or why the people there need to buy their emotional expressions, but Tarina builds the world out of such realistic desires and interactions that I am far more enchanted than I am puzzled. Anyone who has lost or found the person of their dreams upon waking knows exactly why Madame Philidae left everything behind in order to walk into her painting and exactly why the man of her dream smiled his smile for the woman of his story. Here's hoping we all have the courage to do the same in our own lives. What did you think about this story? What aspects enchanted or puzzled you? We welcome your feedback on this and all our stories. In fact, here's PodCastle assistant editor Khalida Muhammad Ali with some of your feedback. Salam, good people. This is Khalida Muhammad Ali, assistant editor over here at PodCastle. Hope you've all been well. Feedback this week is for PodCastle episode number 417, Archibald Defeats the Churlish Shark Gods by Benjamin Blattenberg. That's a mouthful. Our readers really seem to enjoy this story, and there were lots of kudos to our narrator, Norm Sherman. Kudos, Norm! Apparently, He's pretty darn good at kneeling arrogant and egotistical. Hmm. <clears throat> Danuli had this to say. Wow, Archibald is quite the douche. That was fantastic. 
There were so many fun little bits in this story. I was laughing to myself as I was listening on my walk. I think I actually snorted when Archie tossed the emergency beacon at the sharks. I've thankfully never personally known anyone quite as over the top as Archibald in real life, but I felt the caricature painted here of the entitled, narcissistic, misogynistic, clueless, and obnoxiously wealthy grad student is perfect. As Graham points out, we've all had people take or try to take credit for our own work before, but the way Benjamin wrote this was great, in that Archibald really thought he was the savior of the day. Just wonderful. No reflection of Norm's personality, I'm sure, but he really nailed egotistical with that voice. I love this. Envied Dead could relate. This was a fun listen for me. I am currently wallowing in academia and really enjoyed the pinpoint accuracy of the credit-seeking underling in a PhD program. For some reason, I fixated on an Octavia Butler reference the story made, which keeps making me giggle. The research on the blood children of Butler, California. You see what he did there? That is pretty clever. I'm blinking, said this. Oh, this one was delightful in every way. What a fun, unreliable narrator story. A few particular things I found delightful. The censoring of Georgie's cursing, which only made me love Georgie more, and the absurd words he replaced the swears with. His griping about Georgie spraying water around and defeating most of the sharks, but he can't help but gripe about how she's so hypocritical for using the water to drive back these deadly antagonists when he had been criticized for using it to wash his soiled hands. The nerve. The harpoon gun. Sans harpoon. And the dispute about who was supposed to carry it, and because it was heavy, given the rest of the narrative, it leaves little doubt about who was supposed to grab the harpoon but Georgie still using a serviceable weapon in a pinch. But most especially, the misnaming the boater as Rafi and referring to his primitive native ways, when it suddenly turns out mid-story that that was never his name or his point of origin and there was no reasonable reason to think it was. And keeping in mind that this story as told is not a modern in-the-moment narrative, but it is framed as a letter written after the fact, and in the letter he not only misnamed author until the point of the story where author corrected him, and including the part of the story where author corrected him, but he also continues to misname Arthur for some of the rest of the story. If this character were meant to be taken seriously at all, that wouldn't have made sense, but combined with all the other incredibly stupid things he does, it totally works. The Sending of the Moving Shark Teeth by Post. By Post. Fenric said, Fun stuff. Churlish is an underappreciated word. DKT had one simple request. Thought. Write a lot more of these stories, please. Thank you, Danuli. Envied Dead. Unblinking. Fenric's. DKT and everyone else who stopped by to comment, and there were a lot of comments on this story. Keep coming back to let us know what you think of our stories. Over here at PodCastle, we love hearing your varied, intelligent, and thoughtful comments about the stories we produce. For those of you who didn't leave a comment this time, 
I sure hope you'll jump into the fray on the next go-round by visiting the Escape Artists Forum at forum.escapeartists.net. We would love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back next week. Hope to see you there. Peace. Thanks, Kalita. And that's all for this week. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, Forum moderators Talia and Aussie Cat, Associate Editors Arun Jiwa, Setsu Uzume, Christiana Formeller, Troy Wiggins, Aiden Doyle, and Crystal Claxton, Assistant Editor Khalida Muhammad Ali, Editors Jen R. Albert and Graham Dunlop, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with a story just for you. Unless, of course, next week's story is you. In the meantime, don't forget to pick up your two ounces of contagious laughter and half a pound of good cheer. PodCastle is released under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Share our episodes all you like, but don't change or sell them. We rely on donations to pay authors and narrators and all the various and sundry costs incurred by bringing you free stories week after week. And, you know, dragon tamers don't come cheap these days. So if you can, please consider supporting us with a donation. If you can't, please help spread the word through social media and just, you know, telling people about us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Today's quote comes from Michelle Hodkin, who wrote, Maybe sometimes we can only see the truth about ourselves if someone shows us where to look.